All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I do want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And I also want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour of today's show uh, for making this show economically viable. Uh, our sponsors are Blue Gold, uh, Blue Gold Waters Technologies, uh, Prophecy Platinum, Balmoral Resources, uh, Golden Arrow Resources, and SGX Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me once again... Uh, John Rubino. Uh, John uh, runs the popular financial website dollarcollapse.com and he's the author uh, with Gold Money's James Turk of uh, an excellent book called The Collapse of the Dollar and How to Profit from It. That was published by Doubleday in 2007. Uh, he is also the author of a book called Clean Money, Picking Winners in the Green Tech Boom, uh, published in 2008, and How to Profit from the Coming Real Estate Bust, in 2003, how prescient was that? Uh, and uh, Main Street, not Wall Street, uh, in 1998. Well, after earning a finance degree, uh, an MBA uh, in finance from New York University, he spent the 1980s on Wall Street uh, as a euro-dollar trader, equity and an- equity analyst, and a junk bond analyst as well. And during the 1990s, he was a featured columnist with the Street.com and a frequent contributor to Individual Investor online investor and consumer digest among many other publications john currently writes for the cfa magazine welcome john it's really good to have you back again uh, good to meet up with you and wonderful to meet up with you in person finally at the liberty mastermind symposium in Bo- uh, in dallas a couple of weeks ago hi jim yeah it was great to finally meet in person uh, we've known each other probably for uh, a decade or so huh, before we ever actually met yeah before we finally got a chance to meet and it was uh, we, we were just talking to michael krieger i don't know if you caught the last few uh lines of of, his, of our mm-hmm. discussion with michael but uh, michael was one of the many uh, uh speakers at the uh, at the symposium it was really a great time i think a lot of like-minded people certainly not people that think and see everything exactly alike but but that's what liber- uh, libertarians are all about. It's about being who you are. And we talked to Michael about that a, a little bit about why he left Wall Street was the notion that he needed to be, you know, who he really who he really is, and needed to pursue his passions. And he couldn't really put up with all the stuff he saw going on in, in, on Wall Street. And I'm I'm quite sure you're of a similar mind. Uh, that, that Wall Street is completely corrupt. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and you can trace that back, really, to um, to the concept of uh, paper currency. You know, when we took the uh, the dollar 
finally off the gold standard in the 1970s, we, uh, we created conditions in which it was almost guaranteed that the banking sector was going to take over the economy because they get to touch the newly printed money first. And right. it gives them you know, almost unlimited power eventually. And so you, you end up with Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase basically in charge of the economy and doing whatever they feel like, legal or illegal. And so, so that's where we are right now. So if you were working for one of these companies, it would be a moral conflict because uh, you would know what was going on. And on the other hand, you would love those gigantic paychecks that they were able to give you. So there, there are a lot of very conflicted people on Wall Street and probably uh, uh, quite a few who are leaving, as Michael did, um, because they're, eventually their conscience can't take it anymore, you know? Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know how many people there are like that. I mean, I, I I would like to think there's a lot of people. I have to think that probably younger people, more likely, as Michael uh, sort of, I sort of had a joke and laugh a little bit about it. But he, uh, in an interview he recently did, he said he's given up on uh, on his parents' generation. I said, well, Michael, you know, that's that's me. That's I'm your parents' generation. So, uh, but but I think there's a, a lot. Ron Paul also is looking to younger people, people that. Uh, don't have so much invested in the establishment right now that they can't give it up. So, you know, and and people that see that the future is not bright given the direction that we've taken, the direction towards uh, fiat money, towards socialism, uh, you know, all that's going wrong. Uh, I think today has much to do, as you suggested, with the uh, with the printing of of money and um, dishonest money, essentially fiat money. Uh, that really got underway in 1971. If you look at the tremendous amount of growth in debt, it really starts to take off. And actually, I was looking at inflation, too, a, a chart that Michael actually had on his website going all the way back to 1776. It's flatlined pretty much. I mean, it's up and down, but it's, but it's up and it's down. It's not just in one direction. And since we went off the gold standard in 71, it's been one direction. Inflation, the consumer price index, even using the government's bastardized numbers, are like a hockey stick if you look at uh, total prices in the United States. But anyway, uh, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Edward Snowden now because I, we spent time with Michael, uh, but we, we do, I do want to get your take on, on Ed Snowden. I mean, it's, it's really a very divisive issue now, it seems, in many ways, although, as Michael pointed out, it's pulling people together to a great extent now in many ways, people from the left, people from the right. Uh, you know, uh, And there is now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the AP just put out uh, there's a coalition of people that are suing the NSA, uh, and it's people from you know, left, right, center, everywhere. Uh, so I think that's good. Um, I want to get into real estate and and the um, uh, interest rate scenario now because I think, you know, as I look at the books you've written in the past, you've written uh, How to Profit from the Coming Real Estate Bust in 2003, and I believe you think we're on to something now that might be, uh, that, that there may be another opportunity. I don't like to use that word opportunity when there's going to be trouble ahead, but I mean, it's better to see it than not to. But um, before we get into some of those topics that you're writing on your blog, uh, well, before we do anything else, tell people where they can go to, to, uh, to follow all of your work. Okay, I, I run dollarcollapse.com, which is basically um, a blog slash news aggregation site that covers all of this stuff on an ongoing basis. You know, the the idea is that you show up there for an hour in the morning, and you're you're basically up to speed with the the gloom and doomy kinds of things that have been happening in the world. So you could either start your day out that way, or uh, or at the end of the day, perhaps go there and yeah. get depressed and go to sleep. Exactly, it depends on your temperament. When do you like the bad news? <laughs> <laughs> Early or late? Well, a lot of people never want bad news, and they put it out of their mind, and I don't think that's the right thing to do. But but on this issue of Edward Snowden, uh, 
you know, I mean, Congressman Peter King is calling him a traitor. The uh, Obama administration say he's a criminal. He needs to be brought to justice. Um, on the other hand, many of us see him as, as a hero, as somebody who is alerting us to the bad news, what our government is up to. I mean, I've always, the, this show is premised on the notion that in order to make things better, we have to really understand the underlying problems, what's causing the economy to be where it is, what's causing uh, freedom and the loss, loss of liberty. Um, so what about Edward Snowden, hero or villain? Yeah, well, I'd, of course, I don't know all the details of his story, but I'm going to go with hero based on what I know. Um, there, there's a reason that the uh, framers of the Constitution didn't give police unlimited power at that mm-hmm. time. And the reason is that the cure is worse than the disease. You know, you can, if you give cops unlimited power, of course they can catch lots of bad guys and they can protect us from crimes in the future, but then they are corrupted by that unlimited power and they become criminals themselves. And that's the most important lesson of history, at least to libertarians, and that is that power corrupts. So if you give too much power to any one group, even if they start out um, as benign and enlightened, eventually they're corrupted by that power, or their successors are corrupted by that power. And so what, what we've got going on now is the federal government saying, look, we, we face some serious threats, and we need unlimited power. And trust us, we will use it wisely, we right. will use it, and we'll make the world a better place. Um, and then later we'll revisit our power, and maybe we'll give it back if we fix all our problems. And, of course, that's, that's not going to happen. You know, that's not how human nature works, and that's not how history um, teaches us human nature works. Because once we give these guys unlimited power, they will begin to abuse it, and at some point, they'll be untouchable. And we're, we're rapidly approaching that point where um, technology will have handed these guys so many tools for control and surveillance that uh, when the next Richard Nixon or George W. Bush or Bill Clinton or whoever, you know, whoever scares you the most is elected and then reelected, they will have a turnkey totalitarian state to just turn on and use against us whenever they feel like it. And uh, the only solution, the only way to avoid that is to not let it happen in the first place. You can't fix something like that very easily once it has occurred. And so we're, we're at the very end of the, uh, the process in which we have a chance to change things. So Snowden was very important because he has alerted people in a way that nobody else has so far of the powers that the federal government is taking for itself. And so, you know, as you said, there are groups forming to sue the NSA, and, and people are at least paying very close attention to what the government is doing going forward, and that's going to limit their ability to, um, to accumulate more power. It's, it's not going to stop it, and it might be past the point where it can be stopped, but at least we're in the game now. You know, At least most people are paying attention, and the government has to justify what it's doing instead of just doing whatever it feels like in secret and assuming we'll never find out. Yeah, you mentioned... Um the cure is worse than the disease, which which led to the question in my mind: Why are we fighting wars overseas? Why, if we are we fighting wars overseas to provide the things that were given to us in our constitution? That's what I thought. I thought we we're going to stop communism uh, in Vietnam to stop this tyranny around the world, so that we could be a light to the world and provide them with uh, with our constitution and the liberties that were granted and guaranteed therein. Uh, so why are we fighting all these wars? We're changing governments everywhere. Why are we doing that? Are we doing it so that we can give them what we don't even have ourselves now? 
Not anymore. You know, there, there was a time when our foreign policy was at least partially um, idealistic and, yeah. uh, and well-intentioned. Uh, not anymore. Now, we're about the, uh, the continued flow of oil and the continued use of dollars for foreign trade. And that's basically it. You can trace our, the, the particulars of our foreign policy back to those two things by looking at almost any activity out there in the world that, that we're engaged in right now. And so basically we're trying to control the Middle East. And you can, um, you can trace our current problems back to that. If we weren't messing around in uh, Iraq and Iran and basically every other Middle Eastern country, we wouldn't have the terrorism issues that we have right now, and we wouldn't have the justification for the creation of a police state. Right. And, and you can go further back and, and trace our activities in the Middle East to the fiat dollar. <laughs> you know, when, once we started, um, once we gave ourselves the unlimited credit card that is a fiat currency, we began to create a, a global military empire that was basically untouchable because we could pay for it with play money. And so now our military dwarfs any other military in the world. And this has given us a sense of omnipotence. So we blunder around the world invading whoever we want and intimidating whoever we feel like um, because we know we're untouchable. And that has created enemies around the world, which in turn um, causes threats at home now. You know, the, our enemies are coalescing and coming after us. And so now we, we have the rationale for a police state. So take away the fiat currency at the very beginning, and we wouldn't have a global military empire, or at least not one uh, as extensive as this one, and we wouldn't have the threats, and therefore we wouldn't have the, uh, the, the internal police state that we're developing. So yeah. all, all problems <laughs> almost right now can be traced back to the fact that, that we're using play money instead of real money. Yeah, indeed, and uh, and the fact that the rest of the world actually accepts our play money, and I have to wonder how much of that is not being enforced by the military. In a way, uh, we, you know, we've had um, uh, we've had people in this show. Uh, John Perkins, for example, uh, wrote the book uh, "Confessions of an Economic Hitman," who was convinced that a good part of the reason we went into Iraq was to try to force them to use dollars uh, for. Uh, you know, when Saddam decided he wanted to use euros instead of dollars, that we didn't like that very much. Certainly, what gives the dollar value? I mean, you, you and James Turk wrote a book, uh, Dollar Collapse and, and Profiting from It. Uh, you know, if you can see it come, you want to protect yourself and, and do the best thing you can to, to try to preserve your wealth. But how much of the dollar, the dollar, in spite of trillions of trillions of new dollars being created, is still the world's reserve currency, still the number one currency in the world, and, and has recently gotten quote-unquote stronger relative to all the other horrible currencies in the world. But uh, how much of the dollar's survival is dependent on this military? That's the first thing. And then how long can the military be funded when we're, when we're basically a country that's bankrupt? Yeah, you know, when James Turk and I were writing that book in 2004, and when I was setting up Dollar Collapse at the same time, um, our biggest worry was that it would happen before we could get the book out. <laughs> you know, we both thought that the, uh, the global financial system was so unstable that, that chaos was coming and it was coming soon. And, uh, you know, it did arrive in 2009. We almost um, collapsed then. You know, the system almost had its heart attack. Very close. But it was pulled back from the brink. And, and one of the reasons that this happened, that the dollar has maintained its value when, based on 
all the macro numbers that we're generating, it should not be a valuable currency right now, was that the rest of the world was even worse shape. The Eurozone turned out to be a disastrously ill-conceived project, you know, with some serious design flaws that make Europe look even worse than the U.S. and make the Euro unsuitable um, for global reserve currency status. And the, the other reason is that a, a printing press is a phenomenal tool for fooling people. Yeah. And we've, we've got the best printing press. You know, you can use a printing press to set interest rates, at least to an extent. And interest rates are a signal to the rest of the economy. And when interest rates are low and stable, that's a signal that things are basically okay. So people mm-hmm. read that as a sign that, it, okay, go ahead and invest, go ahead and spend, because you're credit worthy. You know, people yeah. will lend you money at 3% or 4%. Right. And, um, and it's available. So go ahead and do it. So that keeps the economy moving um, to the to an extent that it wouldn't be able to move if real numbers were being generated out there. So what we're doing right now is using a printing press and falsifying other economic statistics like inflation and unemployment and uh, the deficit in an attempt to fool people. And it's working, or it has worked up till now, but gradually people are starting to figure out that... Um, Inflation isn't really 2%. There are other measures out there, like the Billion Price Project and John Williams at Shadow Stats, who are, who are generating closer to reality numbers, and their numbers are in the 6% to 10% annual inflation range. And uh, our deficit, if you applied gap accounting, generally accepted accounting principles, to the U.S. government, our deficit is actually $6 trillion a year, not $1 trillion. Mm-hmm. And it, it goes on and on. You know, we, we're telling these glaring, outrageous lies about the economy, and so far getting away with it. But um, I, I think people are starting to figure it out. You see signs of, of people kind of withdrawing from the system. There, there's a term called the shrinking trust horizon that, uh, that is going on out there, and that's, uh, it's, it manifests in lots of different ways, like more people buying guns, more people buying local food instead of uh, the national brands and Mm-hmm. homeschooling instead of sending their kids to uh, to government-run schools and, and many other things like that. And they can all be traced back to the fact that we don't trust the big systems anymore. And at the basis of all the big systems in the U.S. is the dollar. So we're, we're heading for a time, as this picks up speed, when faith in the uh, the national government and the systems that it runs and the dollar that uh, that is the the lubrication for all the other systems starts to erode at an accelerating rate and people figure out that it, it's our policy to make the government w- or make the dollar worthless year after year after year and they they finally head for the exits all at once um, in in Austrian economics they call this the crack up boom when, sure. when people just don't want to hold currency anymore and they they swap it for real stuff as soon as they get it and. Uh, the price of real stuff goes through the roof and the value of the currency goes through the floor. And that's out there. And it's impossible to say whether it's next year or the year after or 20 years from now. But I suspect it's sooner rather than later because you, you see this process gathering steam in lots of different places and lots of different people coming from different points of view but uh, coming to the same conclusion that you can't trust the big systems. So when a critical mass is reached... The, the switch is just flipped. You know, you yeah. just have a tipping point and everything changes. And I, I think we're not that far from that point. Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, uh, uh, you and I have talked about this before, this whole inflation, deflation thing. We look at the velocity of money people are not spending. And I make the argument that the masses of people don't have 
enough money. They're, they're really, things are much worse than, than the government says because I believe John Williams' inflation numbers are correct. And if you use his inflation numbers, then we've never come out of the recession post Lehman Brothers. And in fact, people that I know uh, in middle America are having a tough time of it, staying, uh, you know, keeping things afloat, putting food on the table, paying their rents, paying their mortgages and everything. It's really very difficult. Uh, and so we have this, you know, money being pumped into the system, much as it was in the 1930s, and it's not going anywhere. The pushing on the string analogy. Uh, yet, you know, we're starting to see some some pressures on the bond market, the long treasury market. What do you think is causing that, John? What do, What do you think is causing? Uh, you know, the Fed would like us to believe that they are that they are in control. That in fact. Uh, when Bernanke comes out and talks about tapering and the markets respond to see there, Bernanke is calling the shots. W- what do you think is, do you think that's what's causing interest rates to rise? And do you think this, do you think we've seen the, the, the peak in the, uh, in the long-term treasury markets? Interest uh, yields going to start heading up now for good in a well, long-term think, secular move, move upward? Yeah. I, I think in the near term, the, the recent spike in interest rates was mostly due to the, the government or, or the Federal Reserve coming out and saying that it wasn't going to throw $85 billion a month at depressing long-term rates forever. You know, that at mm-hmm. some point it was going to um, stop buying this many bonds. And that spooked the bond markets because the reason rates are so low right now, or the biggest reason, is that the, uh, the Fed is actively pushing down long rates. So they, they reacted to the possibility that there wasn't going to be this much downward pressure on rates. Yeah. And that spooked the Fed, who had to take it all back right away and say, yeah. oh, no, no, never mind. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep doing this forever. And, and they really have no choice, because the minute they turn off the spigot, interest rates will spike, and that will destroy the, the variable rate um, leveraged speculated community out there. You know? so, so many people now have placed bets on continued low interest rates. Um, and have put themselves in a position where they they suffer if rates go up, that the the system couldn't handle higher rates. If we just went back to normal interest rates, which is to say a six percent mortgage, five percent long bond, something like that, Japan, the U.S. housing market, most of the big banks who have um, interest rate derivatives would would all be crushed. They would just be vaporized, and we can't obviously let that happen. So the Fed will be forced to keep interest rates down um, as long as it can. And so that, that shifts the focus back to the dollar because, you know, the Fed can, as long as people will accept new dollars, use those new dollars to push down interest rates. But the question is, how much longer will people continue to accept new dollars around the world if they know that we're going to produce several trillion new ones every single year and, and throw them out into the bond market and the banking sector? Uh, and so there's there's a limit to that process, and really the question is where is the limit? You know what what number is it that's going to uh, to send the markets into um, some kind of a chaotic phase change where all of a sudden paper currencies don't work anymore? And you know there's no way to know where that is, but you know that there's a number at which that happens, and you know that we're adding to the total amount of currency in the world and the total amount of government debt that's in the world and the total amount of derivatives in the world at, at a really rapid pace right now. So at some point, the lines cross and things go haywire. And at, at that point, all these current bets don't work anymore and, and the yeah. system freezes up. 
and that's the tipping point when uh, when everything flips over and heads in the other direction. Well, what you know, I mean, you just talk to average Americans, and I, I still think if I walk down the street of New York, and I should really try it, walk down. I don't know. I, I don't know. It depends on which neighborhood you're in. I suppose you get different answers. But uh, if I'm walking down Fifth Avenue and talking to a cosmopolitan, a, a group of uh, you know people that are from around the world, you might get a different answer. But if I were to talk to common New Yorkers who believe in the system pretty much, not a one of them uh, see any reason to doubt that the dollar is not going to be good forever. I mean, where it's just what is going to cause this mindset to change? I mean, if we start having a lot of inflation and and costs really start getting away from people. I mean, I, I think it, it, most people, um, you know, people, many people that I know that are wealthy enough, that are affluent enough, don't really have to worry at this stage about putting food on their table. But a lot of people do. Food stamps are reaching new highs in America. I mean, some of that might be fraud, some of it might be abuse, but a lot of it. So clearly, there's a lot of stress in our in our economy. But those people can't. They don't really see any choice of getting out of dollars. They don't even have any dollars to get out of a lot of those people. So I just, I'm having troubles trying to figure out what is going to cause people. I could see it globally if people get out of dollars. It seems to me that's one of the reasons we're fighting wars all the time is to try to keep the demand for the dollar out there. But what, I mean, it's, it's a confidence job, but I guess what I'm asking is what would cause confidence to be shattered and people to say, oh my God, I've got to get out of dollars. I'm going to buy gold. I'm going to buy stuff. Because so, then, when they don't even have any money to buy stuff with, most of the people. Yeah, well, you're really getting to the, the interesting point right now because assuming that the numbers are so overwhelming that this is going to happen out there somewhere, you know, we, we accept that we're heading for some kind of a chaotic phase change. Yeah. So the question is, what causes it? You know, what's the catalyst? <laughs> and there's a dozen different things that could happen out there. You know, you could have Israel finally bomb Iran which they're yeah. talking about again in the news here, which would send oil to $250 a barrel, and, and that would do it. Or you could have the um, um, interest rates spike just a little bit more from here and, uh, and cause interest rate swaps to blow up for a bunch of hedge funds who then go bust and can't cover the other side of the, their, uh, their counterparty agreement with the big banks who are then impaired, and then, you know, the system starts to fall apart that way. It goes on and on. There are a million different things that can go wrong when you create a system that, this, that is this fragile. And yeah, historically, it's something you don't expect. You know, the, the assassination of the uh, Austrian Archduke in mm-hmm. 1914, really. Something like that could happen that, uh, that is completely off our radar screen, but that causes the, the cascade failure of some part of the system. You know? and, and so there's no way to know. But once you uh, have created a system that, this com- that is this complex and this prone to catastrophic failure, something will happen eventually. Now, this is Jim Rickard's thesis of, uh, of nonlinear systems, that right. uh, the more complex they get, the, the more prone to catastrophic failure they get. And so it's just a question of which snowflake falls on the mountainside that sets off the avalanche. <laughs> and really, that, that snowflake didn't do anything special. It just happened to be the one when the mountain was ready to go, you know, when the avalanche was prepared. Sure. So, so that's, yeah, well, that's, it, it, I think, it, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that that's an in, interesting intellectual exercise now is to, uh, to to start looking at all the catalysts and try right. to prioritize them, figure out which one is most likely, and uh, and maybe prepare for it because e- each one has its own investment thesis attached to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's it's impossible, isn't it, John? It's really impossible to know for sure. I, I oh, would totally. add. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, the complexity of the system certainly, as as Rickards points out, also I would say the leverage of the system, the enormous amount of leverage which comes with the fiat currency. Instead of instead of honest money, instead of savings being the capital structure, we have this reallocation of wealth through the printing presses that really destroys capitalism. As David Stockman, who's going to be on the show next week, points out that the Fed is in the process of destroying capitalism from the inside out by destroying the capital markets. The interest rate structure, as you mentioned, interest is the price of, of everything. Interest is the price of money. It's, it allocates money, and now it can't be. It's malinvested. It's mal. Uh, it's not capital is not being allocated efficiently. So we only have uh, my engineer tells me only a couple of minutes left here, but uh, and so much more to talk to you about. But one of the things I wanted to get into, and we're not we've, we're not going to have time to. You mentioned one of the things could be just slightly higher interest rates, and you have put on an excellent uh, a couple of actually a three part variable rate world essay that people should go to your uh, to your website and, and read. Uh, talk to us just a little bit about the sensitivity of interest rates on the housing market. I think you're really worried that one of the one of the big things that could cause the avalanche now to take place would be another housing crash. Do you see that? Is that am I reading you correctly? Um, maybe uh, the, the real estate market is starting to pop again, and and uh, you know Brooklyn, for instance, oh yeah, has just set records, which means your your house in Queens just got very valuable here lately, uh, but. Um, there are companies called mortgage REITs that are at the epicenter of this right now. And uh, they're basically um, hedge funds, let's say. They borrow a lot of money, and then they buy mortgage-backed bonds with that borrowed money, and then they make the spread with massive leverage. You know, they, they might um, borrow $6 for every dollar of capital that they have and buy a bunch of mortgage bonds. And so they, they make phenomenal amounts of money in good times. Mm-hmm. But that leverage works both ways. So let interest rates go up just a little bit, and these REITs are instantly underwater because the value of their existing mortgage bonds goes down. And these guys got vaporized back in 2009, and they're at it again. And so mm. if they have to um, dump most of their mortgage bonds in order to survive, that will push up interest rates independent of anything the Fed is doing. And that will really hurt the housing market in the short run because if you uh, – if you see mortgage rates go up by a couple of percentage points, that totally changes the calculation for affordability and for your monthly payments and and prices a whole generation of of would be home buyers out of the market. So yeah, that it could stop the uh, the housing recovery cold. And really, housing is almost the only thing that that's looking good right now. Yeah, that's that's the only really fast growing part of the economy. So you take that away, and all of a sudden we're back in recession, and that could happen. Well, interest rates on, on mortgages went up um, by a full percentage point in like a month, in the last month. So let them do that again next month, and we'll, we'll see this happen. We'll see the, the mortgage rate REITs just get crushed. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the problem. I mean, it's, uh, the markets are not allowed to function on an ongoing basis, so you have these, uh, these breaking points that are very, very violent, as we saw in 2008, 2009. Well, John Gold, uh, you know, I mean, you're you're an advocate. You and James Turk, of course, advocates of gold and silver. We've had quite a um, quite a correction here. Do you think it's over? Yeah, this has been a brutal correction, um, and I, I don't know where the bottom is for sure. Here, it feels like we're, uh, we're we're at least temporarily recovering some, and who knows? It could get smacked back down again. But the the important thing to understand about precious metals is that the um, the rationale for owning them has not changed. 
the uh, the underlying fundamentals, what governments are doing out in the world, what the big banks are doing, that hasn't changed at all from 2000 or 2004 or 2007. Uh, we're still accumulating too much debt. We're still over-leveraging society. We've created conditions for absolute chaos when little things like a couple of percentage points um, on the long-term interest rate of, of you know treasuries or whatever changes. So um, gold and silver as a safe haven and as a, a hedge against general chaos out there is, is still a great idea. And I'm, I'm reasonably sure that five years from now, we're going to look back at today's prices and, and wish we'd mortgaged our houses and sold our kids into slavery to, to buy all we could get. But um, I don't know about the next six months. Yeah. So it, this isn't a, a trading play, in part because the market is manipulated by, by governments who have an interest in keeping the price of gold down, and in part because... You know, we had a 12-year run, 12 straight years of, of um, good, solid gains in gold and silver. And a, a hard correction is absolutely normal in that kind of a bull market. So it, it, they could go down from here. They could go down a lot from here. But in the long run, the, uh, the things that are going on under the surface point to much, much higher precious metals prices out there. I know, as Rick Rules pointed out on this show, that uh, back in the last gold bull market, and I don't know that you're old enough to remember it very well. James Turk is, for, for sure. But uh, I was a young man during that time, and I remember very pain, painfully at that time how gold ran up to 200 and fell back to 100 before uh, it took off for 850. And, and something like that, I think, is, is certainly could, could take place again in those kind of ratios. Who knows for sure? I guess it really has so much to do with this whole thing we've been talking about, and that's uh, confidence, the con artistry of the, of the ruling elite and how they're able to use the... Uh, the mainstream media to try to educate us in the way they want us to think. And, um, and I guess, uh, you know, we just have to, as best we can, prepare. And I, I guess uh, what that means is just keeping aware of what's going on as much as we can, trying to keep an open mind, right? And, uh, and people should read, definitely should go to places like your website, uh, which is dollarcollapse.com, right? Dollarcollapse.com. That's right. And, Dollar and yeah, this is, this is an absolutely fascinating time. We're living through uh, a part of history that, that is going to, uh, going to be a field day for historians 50 years from now, trying to figure out what happened. And, uh, yeah. and so we get to live through it. That's, that's something, right? Well, that, that is, uh, yeah, uh, these are very interesting times, as I say. It was, uh, I, I see that my, uh, my next guest is not here yet, so maybe take another minute or two. But um, oh, sure. you, you had mentioned that we would have sold our, our kids to slavery. No, I think that's what, in fact, we're doing, is selling our kids to slavery <laughs> yeah, right actually, now. Actually, you're right. You know, we, um, uh, we, we have uh, basically spent all their money. Yeah, now, we've, uh, now we're borrowing from our grandkids because there's nothing left from our kids. It's very sad uh, to see that, and I don't know, you know, what nobody knows for sure how this is going to play out. Just one, uh, one quick question for you, because this to me is sort of, uh, sort of a, uh, of an intellectual teaser in a way. With regard to higher interest rates, Robert Prechter a year ago, a year ago, said we've seen the peak in the uh, in the Treasury bull market, and. Uh, he said that when rates start to rise, the happy talkers, the mainstream, will say that's because the economy is getting better. The inflationist will say that's because the market is sniffing out inflation into the future. Prechter says it's going to be because the market is sniffing out massive deflationary insolvency or, ins let's say, debt uh, you know, debt problems and, and insolvency that results from massive over-indebtedness. Uh, 
what is, what's your view? Could it be a combination of, of two or three of those? Well, one, one of the fascinating things about this time is that we've got these competing, contradictory, incredibly powerful forces out there. You know, we've got mm-hmm. uh, the biggest debt liquidation in history going on because we borrowed so much money leading up to uh, uh, the 2009 crash. And that's profoundly deflationary. Absolutely. And that's still ongoing. And meanwhile, every country in the world has a printing press. They're able to throw as much newly created currency out into the market as they want to. It's just a mouse click. And that's profoundly inflationary. So we've got these competing forces, and it's really not clear which one wins right now, because we've never been here before. A lot, there yeah. are lots of theories out there, and lots of people who, who sound like they, they're completely sure, but I'm not one of them. I, I, uh, I think it could go either way, and I think that uh, a lot depends on the decisions of individuals under pressure out there. Yeah. And so it's inherently unpredictable, and that, that really complicates the investment and protection process for individuals because a, a deflationary crash and a hyperinflation are two very b- different profiles for the world if you're trying to decide what to do with your money. Absolutely. And uh, there isn't an easy answer for that except to say diversify, you know? That sp- spread your risks around on the chaos side of the ledger and hope that some of them work out. Yeah, I think when you say diversify, we want to make sure that people don't think that means just buy everything in U.S. dollars and uh, buy, you know, that is buy U.S. dollar securities, but uh, probably not so many of those as you're going to want to have uh, on the downside. So uh, I suppose you're talking about uh, gold and silver, of course, and probably real tangible items. Real estate, it's not bad to have a house that you own and don't owe any money on in case, you know, whatever happens, right? So you have the basic needs that you need and and food and that sort of thing, taking care of your family and all of that. Yeah. Well, John, we do have to go now. I um, have to take a, a break and, and get our next guest back, but I want to thank you very much for coming on with us. Uh, are you writing a new book? Actually, I might be. James Turk and I just um, spent some time on the phone today about uh, oh. possibly doing a, kind of a follow-up to the dollar collapse book that we did wonderful. a while ago. Yeah, oh, wonderful. We, you know, we've kind of created the uh, the conditions once again that that look like 2005 and 2006. The the big banks are booming and the the real estate market is rocking and gold and silver are down. So it, we could almost do a re- reprise of the dollar collapse book. So we're we're thinking about ways to um, to come up with new material and tell basically the same story. And it, it turns out there's a ton of new material out there. So well, that, that, that uh... might be coming by year end. Well, that might, uh, you know, you were worried the last time you wrote Dollar Collapse that you might not get it done in time, and, and this time, unfortunately, who knows. But anyway, thank you very much, uh, John, for being with us again. Really, uh, always great to talk with you. Thank you for your insights. And, folks, it's dollarcollapse.com. Go there to uh, read what John writes, I think, almost every day, don't you, John? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, or you post it's things every day. Yeah, yeah, I post links to stories every day and, and write something of my own um, every other day, more or less. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, John. Thanks, Jay. Enjoyed it. We'll we'll talk to you again sometime soon. Take care, folks. Take care. All right. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back uh, with Alan Butler, um, supposedly, if he's there. Uh, We're going to take a a commercial break and uh, look forward to talking to Alan Butler. Don't go away. I'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network 
In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, Alan, Alan Butler has not uh, shown up. Uh, he's, uh, I think maybe it's payback time from Alan because there was one time when I was supposed to be on Alan's show and I didn't show up, so he's probably saying, ha, 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 Taylor, I fixed your wagon. But listen, we're very fortunate because uh, John Rubino has graciously agreed to stick with us uh, for another few minutes, so I'm very, very thankful, John. Thanks for uh, for staying around because there's so much more I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, and primarily, the the thing that I think is you know one of the most important things you've written about recently has to do with this variable rate world. Uh, talk to us about that. You had a three part a three part series on the variable rate world. Talk to us about uh, about that. What are what's your concern here? Well, the um, the global financial system has seen interest rates go down year after year after year for literally the last 25 years. And um, it's convinced a lot of the players out there to finance themselves either with short-term debt or with variable rate debt. And for instance, if you, you take out an um, adjustable rate mortgage, mm-hmm. it, it goes up over time instead of just locking in like a regular 30 right. mortgage. Or if you're a, a government and you borrow a lot of um, money in the short-term part of the market, because that's where interest rates are lowest, you have to roll that debt over frequently, which means you're at the mercy of future interest rates. And if rates go up, then your interest costs go through the roof because you're having to refinance your debt at higher and higher rates. And then if you're a hedge fund or a big bank and you have gambled in the interest rate market via um, interest rate swaps, which of which there are maybe um, half a quadrillion dollars worth face value out there, you're also at the mercy of rising interest rates. So we've got a whole world that uh, couldn't handle rising interest rates. And now interest rates are starting to go up. So the, the adjustment process is either going to be very messy or completely chaotic, depending on, on how it all plays out. And there's no way to know, but the, the risks are absolutely huge if interest rates go up um, rapidly. For instance, yeah. um, to, you know, Japan is the, the best example of this, probably. Um, they, they've financed themselves primarily short-term, the Japanese government, and now um, there, there's a, um, a hedge fund manager named Kyle Bass who's run these numbers and says that if Japan's average borrowing rate goes up to 2%, which is the less than the 
U.S. government's average borrowing rate. Um, Japan's interest costs would exceed its entire government tax revenue. In other words, they, they would be paying out everything just for interest, nothing left wow. over for the military or social spending or anything. So their system would collapse, in fact, long before they got to 2%. And um, as incredible. interest rates go up, they get closer and closer to that point. And then the big banks and a lot of hedge funds own a lot of long-term debt. They've, uh, they've bought long-term bonds and then financed the purchase via short-term borrowing to make the spread. And that's incredibly profitable as long as interest rates stay where they are. But if long-term rates start going up and the value of their bonds go down, because those, those two things are reciprocals, um, you see their balance sheets just evaporate. And uh, the Federal Reserve uh, calculates some of this and publishes mm-hmm. it and um, shows that just in the last couple of months, the big bank's balance sheets deteriorated dramatically because the value of their bonds went down now that long-term interest rates are going up. Now, the, the big banks have to show that in their earnings at some point, which mm. means their earnings will evaporate if this keeps up. And nobody seems to be predicting this or expecting it. So you, you could see some massive um, negative surprises in big bank earnings reports going forward if interest rates pick up a little bit from here. And that, that's just some of what could go wrong out there with, uh, with rising interest rates. There's a lot more, but uh, the, you know, suffice it to say that the world is incredibly fragile right now because it, uh, it is largely financed with either short-term borrowing or variable rate debt. And yeah. so that's another reason the Fed can never let interest rates go up. <laughs> if they but do, it's incredible, John. Yeah. But, but, but it's just, but it's just abso- absolutely incredible. Uh, the banks, and, you know, I mean, we've seen it before. Banks are supposed to mark their, their portfolios to market, right? And they decided, well, no, we won't. We'll take that away. We won't make them mark to market. Might they not decide that, well, you know, just for the sake of national security or whatever BS is thrown out there, we don't need to... Uh, let the banks show how much underwater their bond portfolios oh, are. Oh, yeah, they, they would almost certainly do that if the, if the alternative is a collapse of the banking system, which it and might be if interest rates go up too much. But, see, that that gets back to what we talked about before about uh, us slowly figuring out that we're being lied to. That's one more data right. point right. in the, uh, you know, the, the, the coalescing of this idea that, uh, that all the big systems aren't working for us anymore and, uh, and the people we used to trust are lying to us really blatantly. And what are we going to do about this? Well, we don't want to own the currency that these guys are creating now because they're lying about that too. And, and, mm-hmm. and so at some point, we lose faith in these big systems. We don't want to own big bank stocks anymore. We don't want to own dollar-denominated assets that pay us a, a steady stream of dollars going forward because we can't trust the value of that, that income stream. And, and so this would be one more thing that well, uh, you know, at some point... Yeah, at some point, confidence is lost, right, John? I mean, if, if banks, uh, they can lie and they can put numbers on paper that are lies... Uh, which is what they're doing now with respect. I mean, you can understand why the SEC uh, doesn't have much power anymore because if it's they're doing its job, it would force these banks to tell the investors what their balance sheets are really like, right? Oh, yeah, the, the regulators have been totally neutered here. And, yeah. Uh, there's a guy named Bill Black, at least I, I'm pretty sure that's his name, who, who uh, was a, a big participant in the, uh, the savings and loan um, reorganization in the mm-hmm. late 1990s. And he said that, that that was a much smaller crisis than the big banks 
much lately. You know, much sure. much, uh, much less criminal activity going on then than now. And yet they put uh, a thousand SNL executives in jail. And right. there has not been a single big bank. Nobody from Wall Street has gone to jail. No, no That's big incredible. banks have been run out of business for their crimes or anything. So the regulators are really not a factor anymore. No, and, and this is uh, the, the trademark of fascism, I would say. Well, yeah, um, and yet another way that they're lying to us. And, and uh, uh, when, when you start going down the list of all the things that, uh, that used to be a certain way and now are yeah. not that way anymore, even though they're telling us it's still that way, it, it's shocking. We, we're a very different country than we were Absolutely. 30 years ago. Oh, absolutely we were perfect then but now we're we're disturbingly like the soviet union now yeah. in in so many ways oh, it's, it's, uh, it's it's a shame it's it's certainly true you know i was just looking at some income numbers some uh mortgage numbers here john and i think this was something from the uh, you have both uh, interest you have both interest rates rising a bit and you have home prices in some markets have gone up a lot but the national association of realtors put out some numbers here uh uh, one hundred and seventy thousand six hundred dollar was the median home price in January. Um, it's now risen to two hundred and eight thousand. And uh, if you borrowed eighty percent, one hundred thirty six thousand dollar mortgage back in January, it would cost you six hundred and five dollars a month. That's at three point four percent. Now they're saying that the rate has jumped to four point six. So if you borrowed eighty percent on that two on that higher price, you'd have to spend eight hundred and fifty three dollars a month. Now that may not sound a lot to some people, but to a lot of people, that extra that's you know another two hundred and fifty bucks basically that's out of their pockets and a not disposable income for somebody, uh, or just not affordable by by people that are making you know fifty thousand dollars a year or whatever their salaries are. It seems to me. Um, that we're in big, big trouble here. It's just, it's just hard. It's hard to fathom how this is going to play out, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, now in, in the short run, this process actually um, is good for the housing market because people are looking at rates going up and, and thinking, "Oh, I got to buy now." You know, even, yeah. even if I have to uh, uh, take a much less attractive deal than I could have gotten a month ago. Uh, who knows what's going to happen later? And so I'm, I'm just going to get what I can now. And that's part of the reason that uh, home prices and sales are spiking. But that yeah. has a limited lifespan because we're, we're basically taking future sales, moving them into the present. And at some point, if rates go up a little more from here, things dry up because all the people who could buy are done. They've done their buying. And the people who are left uh, can't afford a house anymore because interest rates have gone up and it's exceeded their ability to pay for the kind of house that they would like to move into. Or they can't sell their old house because nobody uh, at, at one rung below them on the economic ladder can afford their old house. So it, it, uh, it will cause the housing market to, uh, to report much worse numbers in the future than it would have otherwise, which yeah. gets back to the big banks. You know, that, that also impacts their income. And so another reason why they're liable to, to um, undershoot earnings estimates in the next couple of years. I'll tell you, John, where I think the confidence is going to be lost. If the banks start to run into big trouble, and I think it's not a, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When the banks run into big trouble, and this time they do bail-ins instead of bailouts, don't you think that's going to shatter some confidence if people go to their checking accounts and find out that 5% or 10% has been taken away from them as a bail-in? Oh. Oh, that's going to be huge. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that sort of thing, it seems almost yeah. inevitable. And they're planning for bail-ins now. The FDIC and the Bank of England, I mean, this is no secret. 
they're getting ready to uh, to just literally rob us uh, and you know legally and technically is uh, uh, as as Miss Brown has pointed out uh, on the show Ellen Brown has pointed out it, it, you know and and when you think about it it makes a lot of sense when you put your money in the bank basically uh, you're lending money to the bank you are a lender you're an unsecured creditor so they're getting ready to bail ins for all un- unsecured creditors it's a fascinating time I, my engineer is telling me we do have to go now John I want to thank you very much for so graciously sticking around to fill in for Mr. Butler who didn't uh, show up today thank you very much again folks go to dollarcollapse.com for uh, John Rubino's excellent work thank you very much John for being with us I look forward to talking to you again soon great Jake thanks yeah. All the best. Take care. Folks, I'll be right back uh, with uh, a word or two about this week's uh, show and also uh, to talk about next week's guest. I'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine, operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully Deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange with the trading symbol SXR. Visit our website at www.sgxresources.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, well, I hope you enjoyed our discussions with uh, Michael Krieger and John Rubino. I think both of these gentlemen, uh, both of them are, are have a, a rich Wall Street history. They've both uh, been Wall Street pros, have done very well on Wall Street, but both of them uh, have uh, staked out uh, a future for themselves that doesn't necessarily give them the most uh, financial returns, but give them um, happiness and joy in the life they're pursuing and, and doing what they're uh, 
what, what their hearts and minds tell them they need to do. Um, and I think both of them are very concerned about social justice and, and, and what's right. Uh, Michael Krieger really looked at the Wall Street and said, I can't live here, I can't work here anymore. John Rubino, very similar, both of them. Uh, Michael Krieger, uh, you should go to libertyblitzkrieg.com, and John Rubino is dollarcollapse.com. Um, I've got just a minute to tell you that next week's guest, uh, David Stockman, is going to be with me. We'll be talking to him about The Great Deformation. This is a book that you really should pick up. It's 700 pages, but it's fascinating reading, absolutely fascinating, and I think a great history helps us understand why we're in the trouble that we're in uh, right now. Also, coming next week will be Dr. Robert McHugh, who's been on this show before. Dr. McHugh is a technical analyst and um, is also in the process of writing a book but he, uh, he believes that we have one last leg up in the equity markets before we're going to see a very dramatic decline uh, in the equity markets and, and in a lot of other markets as well. That's all the time we have. So I want to thank uh, Tacey Trump and Matt Widener um, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.